The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. If you think about it, if the United States is unable to help the Philippines to basically fulfill our obligations to the Philippines under our 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty, China will have discredited that alliance, perhaps even broken the alliance, and leave the Philippines basically with very little option other than to bandwagon with China. If you're looking for a spot on the globe likely to spark a world war, you could do worse than the South China Sea. The United States, China, Vietnam, Taiwan, the Philippines, and Japan all have competing claims there. China is building artificial islands, and the U.S. Navy is patrolling close by. There have been confrontations at sea and in the air. This week on War College, we're looking at this global sore spot and asking just how heated the situation is likely to get. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields with Reuters. And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. James Holmes is a professor of strategy at the U.S. Naval War College and also the co-author of Red Star Over the Pacific, which was an Atlantic Monthly best book of 2010. He's an expert on the South China Sea and what the United States and China are doing there. So let me just say thanks very much for joining us, James. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's been a delight to, to write for you all over the last few months, and it's glad to uh, make the personal contact. Well, so can we just start off with the real basic point, which is why is the South China Sea such a flashpoint? It's quite a flashpoint simply because so many things are at play there as far as uh, freedom of navigation, as far as uh, various uh, interests in resource extraction for fish and uh, natural gas, all of these kinds of things that growing powers like China really need to tap. And in this case, all of that stuff, all those sort of uh, uh, tangible interests, they, I think they merge with uh, China's view of what China should be and what China should own as far as territory. I would say that we're actually looking at, at an intersection between all those tangible economic interests and uh, essentially a really old question about what the sea is. If you go all the way back to the 17th century of Europe, the Brits and the Portuguese in particular argued about whether you can own the sea. We thought this question was basically settled by negotiating the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which states that the that the sea primarily is a, a common, something that belongs to everyone and no one. But China seems to have the older view that uh, that you can't actually be sovereign over the sea and rule as much as you would your own land territory. Just a very quick aside, but uh, the United States has not signed on to that treaty. Does that have any impact on how we view these things? Uh, I think it does have an impact. I tend to take a little bit less. Uh, I, I don't worry about it the way some people do. That's when you go to foreign conferences, there's always somebody who will raise the old gotcha line about uh, why aren't you in the inside the, the lifelines of the UN uh, convention and, and the tribunal that's, uh, that adjudicates the challenges like the Philippines has brought. But I do think it matters uh, in a couple of ways. First of all, we don't have access to the UN uh, tribunal, the Oklahoma tribunal that's uh, adjudicating the Philippines-China dispute, and that may adjudicate other disputes in the future. And secondly, it just means that the optics are bad. It's kind of like the United States remaining aloof from the Versailles Treaty, or in particularly from the League of Nations of almost a century ago. It's, you know, perhaps it makes very little practical difference, but it just doesn't look good. And I think uh, politically speaking, it, uh, it doesn't do us any favors as we try to, to enforce the law of the sea 
much as we have over the last 70 years or thereabouts. James, who are the other interested parties in the region and what's at stake here? The other interested parties in the region are pretty much anybody who fronts on the South China Sea and has an exclusive economic zone and a territorial sea, which are apportioned to them by the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. For example, if you look at the map of the South China Sea on which China has has inscribed the famous nine-dash line, enclosing most of that body of the water, the waters within the nine-dash line are very much within the exclusive economic zone of the Philippines, of Vietnam, to a certain extent, even of Indonesia, which has started to, to butt heads with China in the, in the southern reaches of the South China Sea. So those are the local powers that have the, the clear, quite clearly Vietnam, Malaysia, all, all of the Southeast Asian nations that front on the sea have a, a very direct interest. And some of them also claim the Spratleys and Parasols, and that's, that's what uh, generates a lot of press. The bigger point is that any seafaring state, any trading state that trades by sea, has a stake in the in the South China Sea simply because if China is able to redefine this as, as a body of water governed by Chinese domestic law rather than by international law, China will set the rules by which that uh, the sea lanes are used in the South China Sea. To me, that would set an awful precedent for similar bodies of water elsewhere in Eurasia and around the world, say the Black Sea. What if Russia tried to do the same thing in the Black Sea, the Baltic Sea, Sea of Okhotsk, or what have you? So, so the local powers have a stake, and and so does everybody else. And I think the I think the everybody else tends to get lost in the discussion. So there's a worry that China will impose, say, trade rules and tariffs, and they'll charge people to use these portions of the seeds. That's that kind of thing. You know, I don't think so, Matthew. I mean, yes, you hear this from time to time. I've I've never seen any indication that the Chinese are thinking about charging tolls or anything like that to, for passage through the region. And indeed, I think they're sincere when they say they have no desire to impede freedom of navigation, so long as freedom of navigation is defined very strictly as the ability to go from point A to point B to pass through the region and do nothing else. This is one reason I, in my own writings and uh, presentations, I make a big deal about the difference between freedom of navigation and freedom of the sea. If the seas outside of the territorial sea, which is no more than 12 nautical miles offshore, are indeed a commons, that means that coastal states may not restrict anything other than economic uses of the sea and the seabed. And the the Chinese are always trying to get us, as you know, uh, to stop doing military activities in, in the South China Sea such as uh, overflight, surveillance flights, uh, flight operations from aircraft carriers, underwater surveys, all of these kind of things that, that are explicitly acknowledged and, and endorsed in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea are things that China would like to proscribe. I think it would be a serious mistake uh, to let them set the terms right now because it could be a problem over the long haul. This would actually potentially put U.S. allies at risk? I mean, is that uh, some of the thinking? Because the U.S. is allied with the Philippines and with um, Japan, and if um, China is able to restrict military activity in that region, that puts those countries at risk? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there were two big points in your question, both of which are very valid. And uh, one of them would be that, yes, this, if you think about it, if the United States is unable to help the Philippines to basically fulfill our obligations to the Philippines under our uh, 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty, China will have discredited that alliance, perhaps even broken the alliance and leave the Philippines basically with very little option other than to bandwagon with China. So that's the that's sort of the political and the alliance point. Uh, as far as the practical military point, if the United States and its allies do not operate, you have to operate in a region that where you might fight. If we, if we were to let uh, China proscribe military active activities in the South China Sea, we would lose familiarity with that operating theater. China would remain familiar with the ground, and thus they would build up a, a, a fairly significant military advantage over U.S. forces, over allied forces, should we get in a fight. 
And I think the Chinese are quite aware of that. And uh, and actually, they're pretty forthright about all these things when we when we talk to them. And to also expand the, the domain there, in case uh, there's any question, there have been a lot of building of artificial islands. Is that, I mean, that's part of the strategy? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the islands actually serve a multitude of purposes, uh, but you, you, you hinted at two of them. First of all, if you look at the map of the South China Sea with the nine dash line inscribed on it, and then if you look at the islands that they were improving, putting airfields and and, uh, and and the like on missile batteries and that sort of thing, they are building up the ability to project power throughout the nine dash line zone from those islands on a 24/7, 365 basis, and that's something that they have not had uh, operating from Hainan Island, from the from the mainland, and, and so on and so forth. They're very rapidly building up the ability to project force out into the vast majority of the region described by the nine dash line. One reason that uh, you hear a lot about uh, Scarborough Shoal and that that might be the next target for improvement. If you look to the northeast on, on that map, that is one of the zones that is not currently under missile range or under aircraft range. And I think that would be one of the drivers that would get them to do that, even apart from the, the ruling that may come down from the UN tribunal visa in the in the Philippines' favor. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so that's, a, that's the military point. The bigger political point is about sovereignty. It's International Relations 101. Sovereignty is about a monopoly of force, a near monopoly of force within certain lines inscribed on the map that we call borders. That's the other aspect is that uh, China is building up a serious military contingent in those waters. And it's starting to look like they have a they, they could aspire to a monopoly of force and thus make what they call indisputable sovereignty within these waters a reality over time if they're not checked at this point. All right, James, what kind of stuff are they putting on these islands? Because we say man-made islands, I think, or constructed islands, rather. I think of, I have like a treasure island kind of fantasy about them, but like a tropical lush thing, but that's not accurate. There's buildings there, and are there are there weapons there as well? Uh, yeah, they're starting to be. Yes, uh, I mean, the airfields are capable of hosting just about anything. The PLA, the People's Liberation Army Air Force, can fly. I mean, th- there are not permanently stationed uh, forward-deployed aircraft yet, Earlier on this spring, they have stationed H-29 surface-to-air missiles there, and I think this is just a this is just a precursor to things that we will see down the road. Again, that's uh, that's trying to create that ability to exert sovereignty within the waters and the skies that they claim. At this point, for example, the uh, Stennis, the USS Stennis Carrier Battle Group, has just operated in the region. No longer can we operate in the region without fear of uh, some sort of interference from the PLA. And I think uh, putting that kind of doubt into U.S. commanders' minds is a, is a big part of what the Chinese are after. So let me ask just the most basic question. What can the U.S. do about it at this point? I mean, with short of any kind of military confrontation, it sounds like what China's doing doesn't quite get to the level of where we would start firing at each other, right? Yeah, and I think that's and I think that uh, China has banked on it, and it's, it's actually one of the things that I rather admire about them is that they're able to to do this sort of stuff without actually actually going across the proverbial red line that we hear so much about and and, and triggering an outright shooting war. I've gotten in a dispute with a number of my friends about this, but I I, I frankly don't think we're going to do anything about the islands that China already holds and already has improved. I think we're just basically going to have to live with that, much as we for many years have lived with the, the Iranian threat to the Strait of Hormuz and, and, other, and other narrow seas around the world. I think what we can do is try to help our allies hold what they already have. For example, uh, one of the reefs that the Philippines has occupied for many years, they've marooned an old uh, American amphib on, on it in order to stake their claim and keep the Chinese from uh, coming and seizing it. It's possible that the United States could go out, perhaps uh, put uh, U.S. Marines out there alongside their Philippine comrades and thus show that the United States has skin in the game. 
The other thing for me, from an American standpoint, I think the, the big thing we have to do is keep the Chinese from amending international law by making these things into things that look like islands and thus changing their legal status so that they are, they're entitled to a territorial sea and to an exclusive economic zone around those facilities. I think our overall point has to be that if it was a submerged rock yesterday, just the fact that you've uh, piled dirt on it in an airfield on top of it doesn't change its legal status, does not entitle Beijing to, have to, uh, to ownership of the surrounding waters and skies. That, I think, uh, from the U.S. standpoint, has, has got to be job number one. So they have some really interesting rules about what makes an actual island an island. I only know this because there was a really interesting Reuters TV clip. So, for example, you have to have fresh water on the island or, I mean, some, you know, it has to be inhabitable in some way. Is that right? Uh, yeah, the UN Convention of Law on the Law of the Sea, the full text is out there online, and I would, it's actually a very well-written accord in my view, and uh, so it's something I would encourage you. If you look at the, at the section on the regime of islands, it's, it's, pre, it's pretty clear about that. To be a full-up island, of which the only one in the South China Sea that I know of is the one that's occupied by Taiwan, ironically. Uh, but it basically has to be above water at high tide, so it's, it's always exposed. And it has to be able to sustain economic activity on its own, which, as you pointed out, means uh, it, it has a source of fresh water by which people could actually live there rather than import the fresh water from uh, from the Chinese mainland or wherever. So that, that's I think that's a that's it sounds totally pedantic, but I think we have to insist on these ins- distinctions or else China can essentially amend the amend international law without going through negotiations or anything like that. And put teeth into it uh, using military implements uh, stationed on those non-island islands that they have constructed there. You actually made the case uh, in an article that you uh, wrote for Reuters that the U.S. has to keep sending ships, Navy ships, into the region around these islands in order to set, is it essentially set a precedent? Yeah, the way I think about it is as a dialogue. China is making a challenge. I mean, it's basically saying... Here's how we see things. These are territories that have belonged to China since time immemorial. And, and that's just, if we could put, uh, basically make a new normal, uh, create, put military implements and get everybody else to more or less acquiesce, then I mean, over time that will ossify into international law, much as the Monroe Doctrine did a, a century ago. Never became international law, but it, w- it was explicitly accepted by the European powers, oddly enough, by the, by the Treaty of Versailles. So I think the Chinese are counting on this, on a similar dynamic playing out there. But but the United States, and the, and the case that I've made is that the United States needs to reply to that by putting military implements uh, out there in order to show that no, what, that we do not accept that and that, that China may not do that uh, without pushback from others. This is one reason that it would be truly important to get more flags out there, not just American flags, but also European flags would be very helpful, Japanese, Australia, India, whoever has a stake in the nature of the international system as it, uh, as it currently stands. It's a real uh, process of challenge and reply. China's latest uh, reply to our reply, of course, was denying the uh, Stennis Battle Group uh, uh, access to Hong Kong for a port visit. So it's, it's very much a, a back and forth between the two sides. People may not actually know that even in tense times, navies are often given access to ports that, like, I mean, you can bring your ships into Hong Kong or there's, there's a whole protocol around it. Is that right? 
yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly true. I came of age as a naval officer in the late Cold War when things were starting to warm up between ourselves and the Soviet Union. And yes, it was it was really quite dramatic to see us uh, start having sort of normal Navy-to-Navy relations. I was uh, I operated in the Baltic Sea with the USS Iowa Battleship Battle Group in 1989, and I, we received what I believe was the first uh, salute from a from a Soviet warship in those days. But yes, navies uh, on a, down on that functional sort of deck plates level oftentimes will work together pretty well despite what's going on uh, between our governments. Uh, similarly, we, uh, I mean, we, it's not unusual for us to have a PLA Navy delegation here in Newport to meet with us and to talk candidly with each other. We never agree on anything. We have the discussions and obviously the politics is there, but sort of on a uh, Navy to Navy relationship, we actually get along reasonably well. Which is one reason you'll see our Navy making a big deal out of uh, things like the Code for Unpredicted uh, uh, Encounters at Sea, with basically a code of conduct when our ships encounter their ships or aircraft out at sea. We agree to talk and not to do dangerous things. This is something that uh, we reached uh, with the Soviet Union in, in the 1970s, and it started to take shape uh, between ourselves and China today. So, yeah, there's a weird duality in our relations uh, with with China's Navy and with China's government. Well, James, it sounds like things are very congenial right now, but I, I'm wondering what the worst case scenario is here. And I'm not thinking necessarily of America and China necessarily, but we are just beginning to sell arms to Vietnam. The Bush administration sold arms to Taiwan and they want more from us. You know what? What might happen here? Is it possible that a skirmish could break out over this territory? Well, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's a, that is certainly a possibility. It's one of those things that's kind of strange because I have a hard time envisioning, and maybe you guys have a better idea, but I have a hard time imagining what exactly would be the trigger that would cause such a skirmish, whether it could be one of our lesser allies, perhaps the Philippines decide they've had enough, or Vietnam. Vietnam is a very capable uh, military power. It's actually given China a very bad time during their border conflicts in the past. Vietnam has fielded, or it's in the process of fielding, a very impressive uh, half-dozen Kiel-class submarines built by Russia. Vietnam is a pretty serious power. It is possible that, uh, for example, if China were to put the oil rig out in the the Vietnamese exclusive economic zone the way it did a couple of years ago, it's possible that uh, Hanoi could decide enough enough is enough. I would think it wouldn't start off as a direct U.S.-on-China thing, but that we might get drawn into something via our entanglements with with the regional powers. Not uncommon at all in history for uh, for little powers to get big powers into into trouble, going all the way back to the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War 2,500 years ago. So is there any country in the region that we have a direct treaty obligation to? I, I assume Japan, but I, I didn't know about anybody else. We've had a, a, a treaty with the Philippine Islands since 1951, about the same time as when the original incarnation of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty came into force. That was renewed in 1960. These are not new engagements at all. Beyond that, of course, we keep things rather ambiguous with Taiwan, which is probably a separate topic to talk about. We do not have formal obligations uh, until you get around to that uh, western rim of the South China Sea, where, of course, uh, Singapore is a major non-NATO ally, and we also have uh, good ties with Malaysia as well. But Singapore is a serious ally, hosts American ships as well as ships from other nations, and it's been a good ally that, that punches above its weight. Is it a similar situation to what we have in NATO? In other words, an attack on one is an attack on all, or is there a different obligation? These are pretty serious treaties. I mean, particularly, and actually, I would say the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty is getting more serious now that Japan has uh, has modified its understanding of that treaty so that it lets Japan play a more equal role in that. I think Japan showing that it's a, that it's a more equal ally to the United States is going to be something that's going to allow the United States to justify joining in with Japan and the Shikaku Islands or what have you, simply because they now look like a good ally that will help carry its share of the load. 
so yeah, these are these are pretty serious engagements. I, I think it's worth noting uh, for those who don't study treaty law that even the Article Five of the North Atlantic Treaty that binds NATO together, even that is not sort of an automatic go to war type provision. It does obligate us to view an attack on one as an attack on us all, but it doesn't prescribe any any specific actions. It just says we will act when an attack occurs. That's interesting. Okay, I had no idea about that. I don't think any government ever ties its hands in its in advance of something like that. It's uh, in the, the various provisions of the UN Charter. You're not going to get sort of an automatic uh, agreement to march off to war if uh, something bad happens. You hear so much that it's just simply that China is a growing power and that they're looking to sort of flex their muscles, take a more active stance in the world. Is that what you see as well, or is there something else going on below the surface? Yeah, I mean, what do Chinese want? I guess, I guess that's I guess that's sort of the simple way to to rephrase what you just said. I, the Chinese want a lot. I mean, it's 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 not uncommon for big powers to try to do. And in fact, I think it would put, you 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 could almost make a rule that big powers do try to reorder the system around them, uh, in keeping with their purposes and their power and their and their stature. We talk about Chinese economic interests, and that is really compelling. That's what's driving China into places like Africa, Nigeria, places like that, where they have maintained a growing presence in order to get hold of uh, raw materials that China needs in order to keep the economic growth that they've enjoyed for the last 30 years or thereabouts going. So quite clearly, there's sort of the tangible interest aspect of it as well. Nothing unusual or even uh, particularly worrisome about that. As far as what Chinese want uh, beyond the interest aspect, I think they want a lot in terms of uh, sort of non-rational motives. That sounds like I'm, I'm sort of condescending to them, but we're all we're all driven by things that are not strictly rational, uh, various passions and so forth. One passion China has is to return to being number one in Asia. My friend Sally Payne here in the department, uh, she sits a few offices down. She wrote a book on the uh, on the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95 a few years ago. On page one of that book, she points out that uh, Japan, by defeating the Qing Dynasty's navy off the west coast of Korea in 1894 and 1895, basically upended the Asian order. China's used to being number one in Asia. It has been that way for many, many centuries. But by defeating the Qing Dynasty, Japan essentially made itself number one in Asia. And China's been that way more or less ever since. And uh, China would like to reverse that relationship. It would like to reverse the, the results of the of the various wars that has, that has fought against Japan and lost and thus reestablish itself at the, at the pinnacle of the Asian order. That would be the second thing I would list. The other one is simply, it's almost a negative aim. China is quite aware that ever since the 1830s, it has been victimized by outside sea powers, particularly European sea powers. In the 1830s forward, there was a series of what they called the Opium Wars, in which the Europeans waged a series of victorious wars against the Qing Dynasty, essentially to, to compel China to admit opium, to admit the drug trade to the country. China objected to that, not just because it was a breach of sovereignty, but also because a large numbers of Chinese uh, actually got addicted to opium and thus created a lot of problems for the society as a whole. So there's just a mishmash of interests and not strictly rational interests that are propelling what China wants to do. I would say any any country is going to have some some sort of honor and prestige motives as well. But this is quite repealing the century of humiliation is really a stock uh, quotation that you'll come across in China over and over again. Is that sort of motivation or nationalism getting stronger under the current president? Or is it uh, Xi Jinping? Or is it just something that's continuing uh, to build as they gain power and economic might? It's almost a chicken and egg question. Yeah, I, I think certainly he's trying to. I think he's certainly trying to tap into that. I mean, you hear him describe it as the most uh, powerful 
Peterson's uh, Mao Zedong passed on in the mid-1970s. I think he's quite worried about uh, China's economic situation, whether the you know, growth is slowing down, maybe slowing even more than we think. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to tell from outside. And yes, he's, he's certainly trying to consolidate control, and he used that sort of ideological passion. I mean, all Chinese people, I think, have a passion for China. I mean, China with a cat in all caps. And I think this is, uh, this is something that any leader can play on. It actually makes me kind of sad because you actually see the Chinese, as they feel under duress in the world, they, they get more and more ideological and more and more rigid about that ideology. China feels like it's getting very authoritarian relative to 10 years ago or 15 years ago when it, when it looked like it might be liberalizing. You see something coming out of, out of Beijing almost every day demanding that universities uh, toe the party line, not embrace uh, liberal ideologies such as here in the West and, and so on and so forth. So I think they're actually doing themselves a disfavor by doing that simply because, I mean, if you, if you believe in intellectual freedom, then that, that's the engine of progress. I think they're actually uh, doing self-defeating things. But yeah, so it's, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to say. I do think that there's something basic there in China that would not be abridged by, even if China became a democracy, I still think that's, uh, that sort of national pride, the desire to do away with uh, past humiliation, all that stuff is still going to be there as well. So I think things would be better between us and our, and our allies in China, but I think that would still be, that would still be at work underneath the surface as well. You know, you don't abolish that just by changing the type of regime. So my last thought that I wanted to ask about is just what do you see as being the next likely steps over, let's just say, like the next year? What kind of developments are you expecting? You know, uh, great Yogi Berra says, uh, says prediction is tough, especially about the future. It's really, really hard to you – know, we, we know that politics and strategy and warfare is a, very, is a deeply interactive process in which it's, it's constant one-upsmanship by the, by, put by the respective parties. Without a crystal ball, I would, I would anticipate that China will not back off. If uh, the United States and its allies were able to push back effectively, you might see China sort of stage a tactical withdrawal, sort of cool things down for a while. But ultimately, given the value that they attach to what they want in Southeast Asia, I have a very hard time seeing them uh, back off over the long haul. So I think that's probably the best we can do is try to, to try to solidify the, our alliances and coalitions and partnerships uh, and, 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 and mount a sustained deterrence against China in hopes that over time, you know, perhaps over the very long haul, things might mellow out in China. Uh, and, and China might be, become something that we can live with. As far as predictions go, though, I'd see, it's really hard to see. I, I, I have a hard time seeing them uh, relent on the on the island improvement projects, Scarborough Shoal, Mischief Reef, all of these other island projects, and deployment of military hardware out there. So it's it's I guess my one prediction would be it's going to become a more and more contested environment, and thus. And as it is, I think the, the spark that it would take to light the tinderbox would be, uh, to mix metaphors, would be uh, smaller and smaller. Jim, thank you so much for your talking to us today. Uh, this is uh, James Holmes, New U.S. Naval War College. So I think the information you gave us is stuff that people should take seriously. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I appreciate being on. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be terrific if you tell your friends about us. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes or through the uh, Google Play app. And we tweet, and our handle is war underscore college. The show was created by me, along with Craig Hedick, and this week, Jamila Knowles was our producer. The drums come courtesy of a sound library, and you can blame Craig if you don't like them. Next time on War College.
One of the first tasks that DARPA did was to determine the precise number of minutes that it took for a nuclear warhead to get from the Soviet Union to the United States. This information is technically still not releasable by the Defense Department. I located it in the DARPA records and it is 23 minutes.